Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in this series called The Big Book Cover to Cover, and today we land in the book of Proverbs, Wisdom for the Ages. Uh, we've talked about some of this, uh, lest I seem repetitious, but there is some method in my madness uh, to remind you of the organization of this book you hold in your hands. Um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are typically grouped as a package that are called either poetic or wisdom literature. And uh, not to split hairs, but I want you to keep in mind when we got through the first and second books, Kings uh, Chronicles, Samuel, Kings Chronicles, um, there was essentially a history going on of the Jewish people. This is how God chose Abram, the covenant promises, and how it unfolds. And by the time we're, of course, we're in the divided kingdom, we're having civil war and things are falling apart. Judges is the dark chapter. So we're getting, in, in essence, a history of the Jewish people and God's working with them. When we come to this corpus, this body of literature we call wisdom or poetic, we're no longer in any kind of linear time frame. Uh, this is sort of a different, a different body of literature. Um, the beauty of it is obvious in that we have the poetic aspects, the psalm aspects, but the structure is what captivates most students. Uh, to be a little more precise, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, I would call wisdom literature more than poetic. And that's splitting hairs a little bit, but you don't have the same, let's call it lilt and structure and cadence and things we talked about before, meter we might use. Rhyme, of course, is not found in, in the Hebrew Old Testament, more, much less English. So we're looking at this body of literature that is communicating wisdom at its core, where Psalms is obviously poetic. Song of Solomon is obviously a lot of poetry interfolded with wisdom, not to split uh, too fine a point, but just for you to keep this in mind, how you look at the Bible. People say it's a big book, it contradicts itself, it's too hard to read. It really isn't. And the more you expose yourself to it, and the more time you spend looking at these large you know, overviews, oh, I see why now we're in a different kind of literature, why this is important, and why in some respects it's easier as we study it and transfer it. At the most basic level, of course, uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Wisdom is a big word, means a lot of things. We're going to look at that. But I want you to keep in mind the word wit, because really there is a tremendous amount of humor in the book of Proverbs, and wisdom is compact in witticisms. And that's why, as Christie led the, the Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, many of you know that. You may not know the reference or the address, but you know parts of it. Many of you know faithful of the wounds of a friend. Many of you know some of these little witticisms. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who uh, some of you might have a Ryrie study Bible, taught at uh, the seminary I attended for many, many years, passed away in recent years. But Ryrie had this thesis. He was a very difficult professor, 
Very difficult guy. But he had this thing. If you can't communicate the principle to a child, you're failing. Which is why I so appreciate Phil's comment. He learns more from Christy than me. I get that, you know. If you can't communicate the principle to a child, you're failing. And when you tell erudite academic scholars that, and they use big words and nomenclature, think about legalese. When's the last time you talked to an attorney, God help you? You know, forgive me if you're an attorney. Uh, but there's a whole set of vocabulary. Good physicians have a whole set of vocabulary in the medical field. you got to explain it to the rest of us. Solomon was the wisest man on the planet, and he spoke in wit. So it, it underscores uh, information. You don't have to be an academic to learn the person who teaches. It's his or her responsibility to communicate in such a fashion that you are learning. Now, certainly wisdom and, and big words and big vocabulary can be taught. It's not that we all speak in third grade language, but you have to explain it on the way. If you use a word like salvific, you better define that in a sentence, or many people aren't going to know what that means. So the book of Proverbs is a distillation, and, and why many people like me and probably you love it so much is because it's so compact and there's so much in it that it, you can come back again and again and again. Uh, largely written by Solomon. We'll look at some other contributors briefly, but at its basic level, it's a book of wisdom through witticism and parallelisms, and we'll talk more about that to a degree. In, in, in Psalms, we talked about parallelisms, and I tried to show you a chiasm, and some I talked to people, some loved it, some I don't have any idea what you're talking about. That's fine. Um, it, it's just a way of looking carefully, and I'll show you some in Proverbs that maybe will make it a little easier. It's a literary style. The word Proverbs is from a Hebrew word, which is a little cumbersome to translate, and it, it's more than likely it's a byword. Proverbs means a byword. Uh, if, if you were to drill down deeply into it, it would be compared to something. Any of you have to memorize figures of speech when you took some literature course in high school or college? I remember I went to an all-boys prep school, and we had this list. I forget how many, but it was. It, that's why Catholics believe in purgatory, no offense intended. I mean, there's so much stuff, and we had to memorize all these foils and all these different things, and there were subsets to them, and that, that was our test was how many figures of speech we could recall and define. Um, the, the simplest figure of speech is a simile. A simile, Proverbs 6.23, the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. The commandment is a lamp, the teaching is a light. Commandment and teaching are the same word, essentially. Light and lamp are similar terms. It's just a simple parallel. It's a way of restating it. Restatement is more powerful than repetition. Repetition has a place. How many of your children have to memorize the multiplication chart still in school? What, what, what grade do they do that in? About third grade. Um, I always struggled at the nines. My mind just hit the wall at the nines. And so I had to go over and over and over and over flashcards as a kid. Do any of you still use your fingers once in a while to do math? I know a person that's really smart in math, and occasionally I've seen her use her fingers. And I just laugh. But we had to, there's no restatement of multiplication tables. It's repetition. You have to learn. So what do we do? We put it to music. When you teach your children ABCs, you put it to music. One to ten, you put it to music. And you're instructing them. Well, wisdom literature is simply, at the, at the highest level, similes. 
This is like this. This is like that. The proverb Christie pointed out about darts and you know fiery things that are thrown are like words that are said a subtext of sarcasm and hurt and deception. Let me read from Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's talk through the Bible. I know a number of you purchased this, and it's unlike any book I have found simply because it gives an overview of every book of the Bible and some intertestamental help. But this is what Boa and Wilkerson write. Proverbs is perhaps the most practical book in the Old Testament because it teaches wisdom, literally skillful living, in the multiple aspects of everyday life. In short, pithy statements, maxims, and stories, Solomon and other contributors set forth about 900 Proverbs. Inspired precepts dealing with wisdom and folly, pride and humility, justice and vengeance, laziness and work, poverty and wealth, friends and neighbors, uh, love and lust, anger and strife, masters and servants, life and death. These maxims are not theoretical, but practical. They're easily memorized, timeless truths that touch on every facet of human relationships. Now, I love this last line. Reading a proverb takes only a few seconds. Applying a proverb can take a lifetime. And that's why I love the morning-by-morning new verses I read axiom. Every time you go back, you're going to see things differently. Uh, Many of you have been around the Bible and faith long enough where you've used proverbs as a reading plan where you read one chapter a day, and that way you go through the book in 12 months. 31 chapters in Proverbs. On the 30 and 28-day uh, months, you read a couple extra ones. But it, it takes probably for... I would say if you're in this room, you could read one chapter of Proverbs in less than four minutes. It does not take long. You read it aloud, it takes a bit longer. And what I did for years was I would read it, and one or two would jump off the page at me. And that was the one I, in olden days, I would put on three-by-five card. I would magic tape it on my car when I drove to college, to classes, back and forth to work. And you can memorize all kinds of proverbs uh, very easily uh, just through simple repetition, reading one chapter a day. If you've never done it before, it's, it's delightful. And I promise you, one of them will jump off the page at you. Now, when it comes to outlining and looking at proverbs, um, Again, unless this is in your wheelhouse, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to show you a scheme. It's eight sections. I know some of you take pictures of these slides. That's fine. I don't want you to worry about this. You can't outline Proverbs is the problem. You just can't outline it. Uh, One of my co-pastors when I was in Northern Virginia, D.C. area said, I'm convinced Solomon spilt the manuscript on the way to the publisher. Uh, There's a little more organization to it than that, and this is one scheme, and I'm just going to walk through them quickly. The first seven verses of chapter one, and we're going to look at these in some detail, give the preface, the author obviously, the purpose, and the theme. Then we have Solomon's wisdom, and these aren't necessarily the parallelisms you see throughout the book. Some of them are more of a story or a longer illustration or a longer simile, if you will, And then by chapter 10, we get into the technical Proverbs, where we get these parallels. Sometimes they're triplets. Sometimes they go back and forth of the chapter. By the fourth large large, wives' men's sayings, so they're referenced to a larger audience. Then interestingly, in chapters 25 to 29, most people miss this. And these headings are in your Bible, by the way. This is Hezekiah's recording 
of Solomon's, oh, by the way. So, uh, you know what the term cutting room floor means? You know, in the old days when they literally used razors to cut tape and film, uh, whether it was audio or film, the cutting room floor, what was left, parts that were edited out. Now Pro Tools does it all in the background. You don't even know what you're doing. But in, in, in prior to Pro Tools, you cut tape and you cut film and you spliced it together. So think of this as Hezekiah's cutting room floor. He's picking up things he's heard Solomon say, and he's reorganizing. So they're still attributed to Solomon, but they were an aggregate of what Hezekiah put together. Then we have some individuals, Agur in chapter 30, Lemuel in chapter 31, and then we have this outlier passage I'm going to talk about in a few moments, the so-called worthy woman, the last uh, chapter 31, verses 10 to 30. Again, it's not an outline. It's not meant to be forced on the text. It's just a way of thinking about this body of literature that is unique in the Bible. It's not like any other book we have. And so it you know, causes us to, t- to ask some questions why. Um, terms. The, the book is a goldmine for people that like to do Bible study, word studies. Uh, wisdom, of course, is the primary term in its different variegated forms, about 145 times it shows up in the 31 chapters. The word wise is derivative, about 45 to 47 times, depending on your English Bible you use. Knowledge, 82. I won't go down the list, but the point is there are some terms that are they're fitting to this discussion of what's wisdom. And we're going to get to that in a second. Wisdom is personified as she. I am struck how many people miss this who know the Bible very well. I don't have slides, but if you have your Bible and you turn over to Proverbs 8 and 9, I'm just going to show you very quickly three verses in Proverbs 8 and in Proverbs 9 to show you this. And you're going to go, oh, well, of course, I've seen that a thousand times. Proverbs 8, does not wisdom call and understanding lift up her voice on the top Heights beside the way where the paths meet. She takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city at the entrance of the door. She cries out. Um, If you go, when you go to Israel, we'll take you maybe into the old city. And uh, when you see any ancient city that really hasn't changed much except for storefronts and maybe some paver stones here and there, this is first century stuff you're walking on. Any elevation around these little cardos, these little segments, you think of a person at the top talking, and this is the picture the Hebrew is getting. Wisdom shouting at you. She's calling at you. She's in the streets of the city. She's everywhere. Look at 9, chapter 9, the first three verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her tables. She has sent out her maidens from the tops of the heights of the city. So again, it's a personification. Wisdom is she. And this is so important in understanding the conflict within the book of Proverbs. The adulteress is a woman. Now, is the book only about an older man talking to his son about watching out for loose women? No. And you've got to step back on the literature and ask, what is the author doing? She is the personification of wisdom in comparison and contrast to the adulteress. Wisdom looks like this, using women's descriptions. Adultery, evil, unrighteous, looks like this. So it's the most obvious thing you have to keep in mind when you open the pages of Proverbs 
that she is a personification of wisdom or of the rebellious, the wicked, the adulteress. By the way, she's cunning, she's boisterous, she's rebellious, she lurks, she entices, she seduces. So does that mean uh, the book only applies to men? Of course not. It's just common biblical sense. It's a picture, it's a way of describing. Back to the beginning, this is what it's like. Let's explain it in common language so people will understand it. She does this. Uh, Unwise, wicked, sinful, she does this. So that's the big thing you have to keep in mind. Now, as a sidebar, and one of a little bit of my pet peeves, I'm not mad about it, I'm just discouraged. Uh, Proverbs 31, 10 to 31 is, and, and I, with no ill intent, ministries call themselves Proverbs 31 ministries. And I'm not mad at them, it's just a bad decision. Uh, there, there is no uh, biblical Wonder Woman. Uh, as a woman, if you grew up and you're going to be a Proverbs 31 wife, you know, I mean, for goodness sakes, what a burden to lay on someone. And by the way, where's the Proverbs 32 man? Right? Now think about this. All the instruction is going to this guy, and it wouldn't make any sense. The last 20 verses or so be, you know, this is what a woman looks like. It's the personification of a woman. It's the crescendo of the book. This is what wisdom looks like. She gets up early. She works hard. She takes care of her family. She invests. She's good with her money. That's wisdom. Make sense? And, and when I first learned this, it was like it, the lights just blew up in my head. And again, I've read some of these blogs, and there's some people making lots of money on Proverbs 31 women's ministries and churches. I'm not anti that. It's just not accurate. It's a misapplication. You should have a Proverbs 31 man and woman ministry. It's not taking a woman and saying, you're a godly woman if you do all these things. I mean, for goodness sakes, reading through it, you're worn out. Much less doing it. Uh, so not to, not to be over you know, condescending. I don't want to be. I may be. I don't want to be. Uh, but there's no perfect woman out there that's a Proverbs 31 woman. And where's the Proverbs 32 man would be my question. So it's a summation. This is what wisdom looks like. Keep in mind, wisdom is personified as a she over juxtaposed against a woman who's not wise. Make sense? So we're not picking on sexist. This isn't a sexist man named Solomon. Get over your political correctness, fragility. This isn't about this. This is the way literature is used in the Old Testament to explain what does wisdom look like. Lots of other key terms, understanding, instruction, admonition, discipline, and all these forms that are around the idea of how does one attain wisdom. Um, Wisdom, the simplest way the author is going to explain this is a path or a way. And you're going to see it throughout the book. You walk in a path. You go down this way. Don't go down when the woman entices you. Sure, that makes common sense literally, but the biblical theological sense is don't make a poor choice. I don't know if you thought in your own spiritual life, and I I probably overthink things too much, um, but when I sin, I stop and study why I sinned. And that may sound weird, but I think you need to be a student of when and why you sin. What, What enabled you, provoked you, pushed you over the edge to do that thing? Because to me, there's there's some wisdom and understanding when you're vulnerable, when you're more likely to put yourself in a bad situation. 
So, for example, if a person is into pornography, if a person is into anger or deception or lying, what triggered it that you got angry and you got mean? What triggered it that you turned to porn? What triggered it that you flirted with a coworker? What triggered it, fill in the blank? And we've talked about this before. I don't like the pop psychology, the hungry, angry, lonely, tile, the HALT acronym they teach addicts. Don't go out, don't go out if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired because you'll use. And there's some common sense principle to that. You know, you want to be full. So your relationships are important. The people you hang with are important. The people that encourage you spiritually, your tribe, your community, those people need to shoulder you up so that when you go out, you're not as susceptible to those temptations. The book of Proverbs makes it as clear as day. There's the right way and the wrong way. And can we be transparently honest and go, every one of us knows when we choose to sin. We all know when we make the choice to sin. And we do it because we know a little bit too much about the Bible. We know 1 John 1, 9. We know that He'll always forgive us. We know that if we confess, He'll always forgive us. And this is why Paul so tenaciously says, shall I continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be! We're misunderstanding this. We're free from the guilt and punishment of sin to live the right way. Paul picks up the metaphor of a worthy walk. It's a path. It's a choice every day we all make. I shared this story perhaps in this room. As I get older, they run together, so forgive me. The repetition's a good learner. So um, uh, uh, Dottie Britton was this woman who raised three strapping boys. They were huge, athletic, smart. Her husband was an incredible guy with the Lord now. And, and um, her on, we had these Mother's Day tributes we would do. Some of you perhaps grew up in a church like that. Always kind of dicey, you know, it always cuts two ways. But anyway, we had these three boys give a tribute to their mother. Now, if there was a Proverbs 31 woman, she, she'd qualify. I mean, she was that strong. Woman of very few words. And she would tell these boys that are boys. I mean, you imagine raising three strapping, all athletes. Some of them went to, on, on, on athletic scholarships to college. Uh, so you imagine what the house looked like with three boys like that? You know, you have one house to raise your children and one to live in when they're gone. You know how that works. So the, her, her house was just decimated with three boys. And she would teach them things like, boys, if you have to think about something twice, you probably shouldn't do it. That's a proverb. If you have to think about it twice, you probably shouldn't do it. The wisdom is distilled down to a witticism. And I still remember it. I still remember it. When that son told his mother, Mom, I always remembered, if you've got to think about it twice, you probably shouldn't do it. Because there is some conscience, even in a person that doesn't know the Lord. We know right from wrong. Nobody has to tell us we're living in a culture that's saying there is nothing wrong. And that's why I will grind the axe till I'm dead. Don't let the world teach you theology. Don't let the world teach you about your conscience, for goodness sakes. There's got to be a, a standard that's different than the world. This is a path. This is a way. Another way of thinking about these parallelisms between uh, proverbs and wisdom and evil, the wicked way, the righteous way, the good way, the bad way, uh, the lazy way. Uh, think about these comparisons. They're so common. The wise versus the fool, life versus death, knowledge versus ignorance, work versus diligence. Amazing how many of these witticisms talk about work. And boy, does that speak against a culture, not picking on age groups, that's entitled 
I, should, I shouldn't have to do anything to get that. I should have free health care. I should have free phone. I should have free fill-in-the-blank. Don't let him eat if he's not willing to work. There's a lot in Scripture about a work ethic, about doing the right thing. And again, this isn't hard. It's just easy to be lazy, and it takes effort to work. Proverbs, another way of thinking of it, is an encyclopedia of wisdom principles. And they're not necessarily as neatly organized as the set of Collier's or World Book or Britannica, whatever you had when you were growing up. And if you have encyclopedias besides me, do any of you homeschoolers used encyclopedias with your kids? I'm just curious. Are they just two yesterday? I grew up with the Collier's and the World Book. And if you had my dad ask my dad a question, go get the encyclopedia. I'm sorry I asked the question, you know. But that's how we looked things up. We didn't have the phones. Let's read the first six verses of Proverbs chapter 1. The first verse is simply uh, aligning, the, identifying the author and aligning the, the book. But uh, the next five verses give five purposes that are very easy to see. Verse 1 says, The proverb of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2, and let's read this together. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. You can sit down. Now just underline it so you can see it. Five purposes, to know, to discern, to receive, to give, to understand. Say those with me. To know, to discern, to receive, to give, to understand. There's a progression there, isn't there? You got to know it. You have to be able to differentiate it. Once you have that, now you embrace it, you receive it, you welcome it. It's not this abstract witticism. It's something that you know You've differentiated, now you own it. And then what do you do? You give it. You give it away. You teach it. And then, of course, it's an understanding vehicle. And so the progression is so easy to see. This is perhaps, in my estimation, one of the five clearest purpose of any books in the Bible. Sometimes we have to dig a bit. In John, we know the purpose is, is for faith, for belief. The, these things have been written so that you might believe in the Son of Man. And so some books come easier. Some books are hard to find purpose. This is probably one of the top five in clarity. If you read those verses again and again, you're going to know wisdom is this corpus of literature that you need to know it. You've got to learn to discern it, right from wrong, good from evil, wicked from righteous. Then you you, you internalize it. It's yours. I welcome this. Now, the next thing I do is I give it. I give it to other people that need to know it. Doesn't this sound similar to the great Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall teach this to your children when you rise up, when you get in your goings and comings. You bind it on your arms, on your head. We've talked about this endlessly. So although we're not looking at an historical account we have this body, this principal set of literature that says this is how you implement some of those stories that might be harder to understand and certainly harder to retain, and this is real easy to grasp. Those are your five purposes. Let's take a look at some of these in depth. Number one, what is wisdom? Kind of hard to define it technically. 
but a little homework will help. Dr. Lewis Goldberg taught at Moody for many, many years in the Jewish Studies Department, and he distilled this. Let me just read you uh, a portion of what he has written. When you distill the verb and its derivatives, it occurs some 312 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Three-fifths of those forms are found in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. That's why we call it wisdom literature. When we look at the way this term and the field of meanings are used, you're going to find it primarily in the wisdom literature, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. He says the most the simplest way to wrap your arms around it is the word intelligence. Now, in and of itself, I don't like that because then it sounds like you've got to be smarter than somebody or more intelligent. But we need to understand intelligence, how it's used in biblical literature. So I've given you a few words. And these are simply the way wisdom is used in the Bible. And let me give you a few of these Again, this is just to give you a big picture. Don't try to copy all this down. The first one is technical skill, and that can mean actually military skill. In 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 14, remember we talked about Hiram or Horam, the king of Tyre, who helped Solomon, uh, a worker in bronze. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he comes to Solomon to do things that the Israelites didn't have knowledge. There was a skill there. Exodus 28.3, you shall speak to all the skillful persons that I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they will make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. And Aaron's ephod and breastplate were unique to what the average priest was going to wear. If you uh, have your pants let you know, taken in or let out or the hem adjusted, you might just drop them off at the dry cleaners and some person there will do it for you for you know, some fee. You're going to have a custom suit made. You're going to have a bridal dress, a, a wedding dress done. You're probably not going to go to the dry cleaners and say, well, you make me a wedding dress. You're going to go to a bridal shop, and there's going to be a seamstress who is a professional, and he or she is going to fit this thing. Uh, if your daughters have gotten married, I mean, you've never seen more pins than in a pin cushion when they put this dress on this woman, and they, you know, they pin her, 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 measure, 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 and then you spend lots and lots and lots of money, and it comes back, and it's supposed to fit, right? Um, you need skillful people. You don't take that to your Aunt Susie who can embroider you know, napkins or something. You take it to a person that has this skill. Um, we also see it in when it comes to work. There's an industrious aspect to this technical skill. Uh, it's used in governing and leading. And there are a number of passages. One just that I, I like is the one in 1 Kings chapter 3 when the, the uh, two harlots come to Solomon. And you know the story that one child's died and the other woman is taken. This is my child. And they're arguing about whose child is it. And of course, he says, bring me a sword. And right away, the mother whose child it is says, no, 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 let her have it. And Solomon knows that's the real mother because she understands what's at stake here and the other one doesn't care. And it says they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So you see a governing and a leading and a, a skill set. Um, it also keeps us from sin, which is an interesting observation, the way it's used repeatedly in wisdom literature. If you're smart, you avoid that. You don't go down that path. You don't traffic with people who are evil. You don't traffic with thieves. You don't enjoy when the bad guy gets away. Uh, I was reading, um, 
I, I'm, I love movies and I get too involved in them because I read all these articles about them and I read the script and what they had in mind. And I forget the term, but there's a term that's used in screenplay when you love the bad guy. And Ocean's Eleven is a great example, the Ocean's movies. You want the bad guys to get away with it. And the way the writer makes it sort of uh, okay is that you're stealing from other bad guys. That's the way they look at it. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, probably the first movie a lot of us saw, were rooted for the bad guys. They were terrible. We wanted them to live in the end. Um, beyond the comedic part of that, what's happening to us? We like the skill of the bad guy, and we're, we're enamored by it. Proverbs says, no, the wise person differentiates. The wise person knows that this will keep you from sin. Shrewdness is an interesting way the word is used. A wise person is a shrewd person. Um, not in a malevolent way, but they know shrewdly how to get things done. And finally, wisdom is thought of as one who has ethical wisdom. Uh, ethical meaning a higher plane, a higher value. What's good for the whole? What's good for the family? What's good? What's the right decision, even if it's hard to tell the truth? So these are just five ways the term is used, not to overwork it, but you, you and I need to think of wisdom in a broader category. Well, he's, he's wise. She's really wise. She's wise in parenting. He's wise in investing, so forth and so on, which is true, but this is a much more comprehensive term. Taken together, uh, I submit a definition. It's not the best one, but it's one that I came up with years ago. Wisdom equals understanding and applying knowledge. Wisdom is understanding and applying knowledge. You've got to understand it and apply it. It's got to be both. And we'll talk about why in a few minutes. Wisdom is understanding and applying knowledge. Um, how do you acquire wisdom? Second big question. Well, first, you have to recognize God as the source. This is, uh, to me, liberating. You don't have to go to get multiple advanced degrees. You don't have to study your field endlessly, which doesn't hurt. But God is a source. And secondly, and most encouraging to me, is that anyone can pursue it. And that goes back to Proverbs 8 and 9. The differentiating clause in, in the book of Proverbs is the fool. The naive and the simple, we might look at as condescending terms. They're really not. It's sort of like a neutral palate, like a, a child or an adolescent that might be naive or simple. When your uh, teenager has his first, you know, falls in love, or the girl or boy falls in love for the first time, you know all about that. You know the hormones are crazy, they're crazy, their brain's developing. This is not the person they're going to marry 99.999 times. You know, uh, the, the, I mean, it could happen, but logistically and common sense, this is a first love. And it's going to be one of many heartbreaks. And you as an old married fogey can say, look, that ain't a love. That's puppy love. That's hormones. That's craziness. That's, you know, um, it, it just, so wisdom is the one who's teaching uh, the younger person because anybody can acquire it. The person that won't accept it is the fool. They're stupid. You can hit them with a stick over and over and over. They still won't get it. Some of us have had the joy of raising a teenager who at times we think are fools because you can tell them again and again and again and again and again and again, they still do the same behaviors. And at some point, that's when I tell parents, uh, remember, your child's a free agent. Just because you taught them and loved them and gave them resources and pointed them in the right direction and showed them the path, they're a free agent. 
You can't make them love Jesus. You can't make them make the right choices. When we were parenting our younger kids, we always, our hope and prayer was, you know, will you serve God or will you serve yourself? We beat that into them. And then we beat the whole thing in. What do you want to do? Not what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you think God wants you to be when you grow up? That's a very different question. What do you think God wants you to be and do when you grow up? And then our goal was to look at their skills, their inclinations, their interests, their passions, what they enjoyed, whether it was an instrument, whether it was horses, whether it was soccer or lacrosse. God help us, two drum sets. Um, you know, I mean, we did everything we could. Art, crafts, trips, uh, athletics. Cindy was a big believer in expose them to sports and expose them to music because we believed there was a language in your brain that was either linguistically or musically aligned and try to find something you can hook your teeth into. And maybe you're not going to be uh, the music theater star, but maybe you'll find yourself on the backside of the music theater, working the lights and the sound. Maybe you'll find yourself as a, as, you know, a minor part in the play. You're, still, you're looking for what they can see. And so you as a parent are trying to know, to discern, to receive, and to teach. But you can't make a fool learn. And sometimes even the school of hard knocks isn't enough. But this is part of the larger corpus of the wisdom literature. Back to the high level, the audience and the reader in the first context was Solomon to a son. Now, I'm going to argue he didn't have one boy in mind. I'm going to argue his witticism was, this is how an adult teaches a younger person. This is how a mentor teaches someone else. So a parent, obviously, is training your child. Um, if you have more than one kid, you realize that parenting methods A didn't work with child B, right? And it's, it's, it's mathematical. The more children you have, the more complex it gets. When, when we have friends that have two kids or young couples that go, we're going to have a third, and I go, I'm just, just going to warn you. You go from one-on-one to zone defense. And once you have more than four, they parent each other. Just give up. You're not going to be as good a parent as you were with the firstborn compliant child. If you had a firstborn compliant child, you need to repent of everything you said about how great a parent you are. Because God will give you a second or a third that will be a little different. Um, We live in Music City. How wonderful to see skilled musicians who will train younger men and women who are interested. Um, From time to time, people, they're going to move here and they want to be this or that. And I go, look, I know the industry is difficult. I know it's changed. I know it's very hard for people. But here are some friends that I know will give you a cup of coffee. And I can send them uh, writers and producers and engineers. And they're so kind and they're so patient. And they go, look, this is what I do. This is how I did it. I slept on couches. I found my way in an engineering booth. Uh, I had a little bit of a career and it's over. What are you going to do if you don't make it big? All these content. You know what? It's so great to have godly men and women in the music industry to say, would you talk to this young man, this young woman? Medicine. I I have a love and passion for medicine. And I know it's changed so much from when uh, some of you started in medicine and where it is today. You're you're dealing with, you know, you you never became a PA, a nurse, or a medical doctor, or radiologist to fight with insurance companies and forms. You wanted to help patients. And it changed. So when a young person says, I'm going to med school, I go, can I introduce you to a few of my friends who are doctors and NPs? And would you just go grab, and they're hard to get to, but they'll make time for you. And it's an academic discipline. You got to be smart. I'm sorry. That's how it works. 
And as a patient, don't you want a smart person taking care of you? I mean, this is not that hard. Come on, hello, McFly. You know, I mean, I want somebody that is academic. It's an academic discipline. They got to stay at it. We could talk about every field this way. We need older men and women who have the wisdom of life to be able to help younger people make those decisions when it comes to marriage and family and professions and careers. Um, Let me differentiate it this way between uh, the brilliant professor and the amazing craftsman. You have a brilliant professor. We've all had them. They know their subject inside and out. They know more about Ugaritic or Aramaic or speech pathology or algebra or calculus. They know more about that than anybody on the planet. But they're not very good as practitioners. On their hand, you have a person that maybe barely made it through high school. Uh, I worked at a, at a, as a mechanic uh, for the Southern Railroad uh, Pacific, and then I worked uh, in a Ford dealership through college part-time working on diesel trucks. And there was a guy who worked there named Rayburn Parrott. His nickname was Nub because Ford Motor Company had worked him to a nub. Now, if you're not old enough to see what happens to a screwdriver over 30 years of use, it becomes a nub. You just keep sharpening it and using it, and it's sort of personal at that point. You keep that. Well, he was a nub. He had arthritis. He was ornery. He was crotchety. He was their first guy at work every morning, and he knew more about carburetors than the entire shop combined, but he wouldn't tell anybody how to fix a carburetor. That was part of his story. Um, I was assigned to, to be his helper because we had this uh, this uh, gasoline wrecker, not a diesel wrecker, a gasoline wrecker, and he could haul a fully loaded 18-wheeler tractor trailer on its side. He could ride it and haul it back to the shop using chocks and blocks and tackles and pulleys because he figured it out himself. He didn't go to engineering school. He didn't study pulleys and clamps and fulcrums and look at trigonomic. He figured it out the hard way. He was not willing to share that with me. So I had to watch him. I had to study. I had to ask questions. And here we are in jumpsuits uh, in the red East Texas clay around these chicken houses that are lovely smelling. And uh, there's a feed truck on the side in the red clay mud with half of the axles in the mud. And this gasoline Ford wrecker truck would pull up. He knew how to adjust the boom. He had made these chocks himself. He had certain chains. He called me boy. And you know, he'd send me over to wrap a chain around a tree or whatever, and we would write these things and pull them around the corner, and they would fill the silos, and it would fall over again, and we would do it again. Rex on the side of the highway at 2 in the morning when it's raining, he'd be out there with one of those trucks. He could ride it. He could get it on a trailer. He could pull it back to the shop. He had common sense. Could he teach a course on calculus or trig or geometry? Not for his life. Now, put those two together. You got the brilliant academician that wrote the textbook on advanced calculus and trig, and you got Rayburn Parrott that's living in the real world. You put those two together, you have wisdom. That's wisdom. You have to have the intellect, but you have to be able to apply it as well. And that's why I like the little definition that I've suggested. Wisdom is understanding and applying knowledge. You've got to have both sides of this. Now, The great part about this is every one of us can gain wisdom. You don't have to be the academic, and you don't have to be Rayburn. It's available to everyone, and that is if you recognize I'm simple and I need to learn. That's the only requirement. I want to be a learner. 
There are three sources of wisdom, in my opinion. God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. If you've been around me, you've heard me say this 800,000 times. God's Word is our foundation. Not the world, not what people say about God's Word, but the source, God's Word. God's Spirit, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted Him, He permanently indwelled you. There's a lot of bad language around the Holy Spirit, what He does. He leads, guides, protects, instructs. We've got to put that together for another time. The bottom line is, the Holy Spirit empowers us to appraise the knowledge of the Scripture that otherwise was just a book. You can read that book over and over and over. Umberto Casuto, who wrote the best commentary on the first uh, uh, 12 chapters of Genesis, doesn't believe a word of it. He's a brilliant Hebrew rabbi who doesn't believe a word of it because he doesn't have God's Spirit to help him put value to it. Paul talks about those who are spiritually appraised. You can't put value to it. A gemologist who looks at a diamond can tell you how much that diamond is worth. I look at it and go, I like it or I don't. How much does it cost? I don't like it so much. Someone who has the skill set to look at it and know what it's worth. Someone has the skill set. So when you have the skill and the Spirit indwells you, now, now I can gain wisdom. God's Word, God's Spirit. And then we do need God's people. Because sometimes, apart with God's Word and God's Spirit, we make some pretty dumb decisions. I don't know how people have come to me and said, well, I prayed and the Lord led me to and I just stopped them. And I'm going to say, wisdom is going to shout at you for a minute. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just going to throw a big yellow flag up there. Just because you prayed and this experience seemed to work out does not mean it's God's will. I've seen this rodeo too many times. Because your experience, your emotions are not necessarily trustworthy. And that's why you need God's people. Not just any you know Christian come lately. You need a community of people that you trust. God's word. God's spirit, God's people. That's the corpus of wisdom. And Proverbs is the cheat sheet. Proverbs is the witticism to go to. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, probably a duck. It's a witticism that anyone can grasp. Years ago, um, some of you might know the name David Augsburger. He was a professor at a number of different Mennonite schools. He came out of California, had this incredible radio, television voice, and um, he, his sort of his emphasis was in reconciliation, and he, he's a pacifist, which was interesting. But I got to know him and uh, loved talking to him and reading his books on forgiveness and whatnot. But I remember asking him one time a question, and uh, his response to me was, let me ask you a question, which is always a good teacher. And he said, do you view your life as an ongoing narrative or as a book of chapters? He said, no right or wrong answer, but how do you look at your life? Is an ongoing narrative or a book of chapters. And uh, we talked about that, and I, I said, probably a narrative. And he goes, okay. And then he told me why he looked at his life as a book of chapters. And after that, I said, okay, I guess I should look at my life as a book of chapters. Um, but the, it was a simple question, but it reframed so much for me when I was 29 years old. Because I was looking at, you know, point A to B. Not A, B, C, D, E, F, G, B, D, F, R, you know, I wasn't looking. Life does not go this way, I'm sorry to tell you. It goes this way. The general trajectory, we want to be sanctified, but it doesn't go the way you and I plan. And so chapters was a good way for me to look at it. And you know what's great about a chapter is you turn the page. You turn the page. I made some terrible decisions in life. I made some mistakes in life. I hurt people in life. God, forgive me. And I turn the page. 
And that's wisdom. Knowledge and understanding, when you put them together, you and I have wisdom. And it's available to anybody who's willing to learn. Michael Leasley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates.